Hey everyone, this summer I recorded a podcast series called Geopolitics on the Move with Fyodor Lukyanov, the editor of Russia and Global Affairs. Geopolitics on the Move is a collaboration between Russia and Global Affairs, the Graduate Initiative in Russian Studies at the Middlebury Institute for International Studies, and the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. The Carnegie Corporation of New York provided funding to make this series possible. In this six-episode series, Fyodor and I talked to some of the best Russian, European, and American thinkers about some of the geopolitical challenges confronting our COVID world and Russia's place in them. To give you a taste of the show and to encourage SRB listeners to check it out, I thought I'd share episode three, Wither Liberal Democracy, a conversation Fyodor and I had with Ivan Krasev. So if you like what you hear, just search for Geopolitics on the Move on your favorite podcast app, or go to anchor.fm slash geomove to subscribe. I hope you enjoy it. Here's Geopolitics on the Move. Geopolitics on the Move. I'm Sean Guillory, the host of the SRB podcast. I'm Fyodor Lukyanov, the editor of Russian Global Affairs. Geopolitics on the Move is produced by Russia and Global Affairs, the graduate initiative in Russian studies at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies, and the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. The Carnegie Corporation of New York provided funding. The initial shocks of the coronavirus pandemic are waning, and global life is slowly getting back on track. Though change in response to COVID is inevitable, there's a growing sense that everything will continue as before, but only worse. The list of geopolitical challenges is intensifying. Nationalism, the clash of identities, the fragmentation of the world economy, and the erosion of the liberal economic model. As do the responses demands for greater sovereignty, dismantling arms control regimes, and escalating competition among major powers, especially between the United States and China. COVID-19 didn't create any of these. It only reinforced them. Perhaps the pandemic's most profound impact will be on the relations between people, society, and the state. COVID hit Russia at a domestic crossroad. As the virus began to ravage the world, Russia started to reform its constitution and modify its state system. Like elsewhere, the pandemic didn't torpedo this agenda. It simply complicated the path forward. Even without the unexpected upheavals, it was clear that Russian politics was entering into a new stage. Now the search for a new balance of geopolitical forces will occur in completely different conditions. What does Russia think? How much do Russian perspectives on international issues in this new moment differ from those of the United States? Are convergent, if not common, perceptions of the future possible, or will the divergences widen? In the following discussions, Geopolitics and the Move will address these issues with some of the best Russian, European, and American thinkers tackling these contemporary challenges. At the end of the 20th century, it seemed liberal democracy would triumph forever. But today, many are asking why it has begun to fade and whether is it possible for the liberal democratic light to shine again. Why has such a promising beginning turned into such a whimpering finale? And is this really the end? We asked Ivan Krastev, a leading researcher at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna, for his thoughts. Just for us to start our discussion, Ivan, uh, why don't you introduce yourself? No, I'm Ivan Krastev. I'm Bulgarian political scientist, uh, now also working with the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna. Nothing particularly important to say about myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we should keep this this title uh, in the final version. Nothing particularly important. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate the brevity, <laughs> the simplicity and the humility in it. Well, you know, Yvonne, you do have this new book with Stephen Holmes, um, The Light That Failed, 
why the West is losing the fight for democracy. And I wanted to just ask you, what inspired you to write this book? Listen, this book came as a kind of a very long period uh, of conversation with Stephen Holmes. It started as a very different book. Uh, in fact, it started as a book on Russia and somewhere around 2006, 2007, uh, we had a book project that we uh, offered to one of the big American publishing houses, which was very much, is uh, Russia the future of the West? Uh, and we have been very much interested to see certain type of a trends that before have been seen very much coming uh, and always explained as coming from the Russian past. And our story was, is Russia the ambassador from the past or is it the ambassador of the future? And it was on the level of, uh, for example, the problem of the imitation democracies, the relations between the public of the elite. Uh, uh, and all this was then kind of a very vague and we were trying to understand what was going on. Uh, and then paradoxically, uh, when we start uh, looking in other directions, uh, we basically understood that what we really want to write a book about is a certain period that started with 1989 and which ended uh, probably around 2016 with the elections of Donald Trump. And we decided to tell this as a kind of a common story. So this is why having Stephen, that he's been on the American side of the story and having me on the East European part of the story was also trying basically to suggest that we're going to play with these two different points of view all the time. Ivan, if, if, if I may ask, uh, is Russia the future of the West after all? Uh, listen, I don't know. Probably Russia is not even the future of the Russia. I'm not sure. Uh, but, uh, but in a certain way, what was interesting for us was that we, see, we were seeing different developments and we're trying to see all of them as a deviations from a certain model that we expected uh, to become a triumphant, if not today, tomorrow. And this is very important for 1989. Uh, probably at the moment we also see such a transformative moment like 1989. But in 1989, at least we have the illusion that we know in what direction the world was going. And for us, it was very important because uh, when we have been writing this book, we try to understand to what extent this understanding of the end of history, uh, which came with uh, uh, Frank Fukuyama's book, uh, was important for us understanding, but also misunderstanding what was happening in the world around us. Um, you know, I, I wanted to to have you explain something that you know in that's in the book, but also in the a couple of the articles that you both have, uh, you and Stephen Holmes have published around the book, and that is this idea of imitation, or the, or the chapter of the book is the copycat mind. W what do you mean by that, and how does it play in? to your uh, analysis? No, listen, people are normally very critical and mocking about Fukuyama's idea of the end of history, but it is not by accident that it captured uh, the public imagination at the end of the Cold War. First of all, it's quite interesting to remember that the article was written in the spring of 1989. Uh, Soviet Union was still there, and to be honest, very few people believe that it is not going to be around for the next 10 or 20 years. Uh, there was uh, Tiananmen has not happened yet. So from this point of view, the end of the end of history, the talk about the, the end of history was not the story about simply the West uh, uh, domination uh, in political economic terms about, over the East. It was very much the case that suddenly the East lost trust in its own ideology, at the same time staying with the Hegelian idea that history has an end. And I do believe many people in the East, in our countries, uh, for us it was much easier to believe that capitalism was the end of history than to believe that history does not have a final destination. Uh, so from this point of view of determinism, the interesting story was that suddenly the idea of the future has changed. Before the future was somewhere ahead of time, and we didn't know much about it, we can dream about it, we can project about it, but you don't have the feeling that anybody is living in the future. Suddenly in the 1990s, uh, with the idea of the end of history, future was the West, the United States, Western Europe. And all others talking about the future very much was talking becoming like the West. And the idea of being a normal society, all this concept of normality was critically important to make sense of the 1989 revolution. Uh, this has two important implications. One was that we basically decided, particularly in Eastern Europe, 
to implement and to adopt the institutions of the West in order to become a normal countries. And the others, that those who have been much more revolutionary minded, they decided not to wait the moment their countries are going to become like the West. They decided to immigrate individually to join the West. Uh, and I do believe this is critically important because this kind of the world divided between the models and the imitators for us was one of the major distinctive feature of the post-1989 world, and it produced its own resentments. And as uh, we have been arguing in, in the book, basically many of the populist leaders, particularly in Central and Eastern Europe, their message was, we don't want to be the replica. We want to be the original. We don't want to be a copy. Now you are going to imitate us. On the other side, it has also a very important impact on the West itself. Because if you believe that you are a model and others are just copying you, you're becoming uncritical to your own, to your own reality. If everybody wants to be like you, you should be fine. Uh, and from this point of view, the loss of a critical perspective was, in my view, very important and partially explains some of the problems that we see in the Western societies, particularly in the United States today, when a big part of the populations, by the way, voting differently, uh, became disappointed and very critical to the American model itself. Yeah, this speaks to something that um, that I, I see going on here. On the one hand, you have in 1989, you have this ideological vacuum, right? That you know, the communism has failed as as an ideology. Uh, the only ideology that's left is you know liberal democracy and all of the trappings that come with that. The idea of the West. Uh, then there is you know the the rapid change of Eastern European societies. Uh, you know, and, and rather than new institutions developing organically in this rapid period of euphoria, you have this implementation of a model or, you know, what you call kind of an imitation. Um, and then you have the third process, which I think is, as you point out, is really important that Eastern Europe begins to f function at what I would call as a, a, a kind of psychological comfort in the sense of in the West, people could say, well, you know, we have all our problems here, but those people want to be like us. So it, it kind of reaffirms the, um, the universality of uh, Western liberal democracy. Uh, totally. In a certain way, we basically, uh, we had the, the enthusiasm of uh, the kind of a newly converted, and this was critically important. Uh, and then even when uh, certain uh, people in the Western society started to come with the questions about their own political system, they have been easily silent saying, listen, look at the others. Uh, look at the places where people go on the streets with the American flag or with the European flags. Uh, and this very much uh, uh, changed the conversation. And I do believe this loss of a critical perspective was uh, very important to try to make sense of some of the problems that uh, democratic societies face today. Uh, on the other side, if you're living in Central and Eastern Europe, and now we talk about uh, the crisis of democracy, uh, uh, the problem is that if you're imitating somebody, you believe that the model is fine. If you see the model in crisis, uh, then basically your sense of crisis is becoming much more urgent. For example, in Bulgaria, normally when we had a big corruption scandal, we're going to say this can never happen in the United States or this can never happen in the United Kingdom. And people are not saying this anymore. So you wrote uh, your book, uh, or your book was published 2019, and since that much changed. Uh, from my point of view, uh, and I wrote it in a Russian foreword to your book, uh, that was an excellent uh, prediction because uh, you described the whole era which, com, uh, which came to its end just uh, in spring 2020. Uh, and since that, you wrote another essay or brochure, uh, It Is Tomorrow Yet, uh, about, uh, so to say, impact of coronavirus. So and my question would be, uh, don't you think that this pandemic actually ended the era of uh, imitation, because suddenly all countries, uh, doesn't matter, democratic, autocratic, pro-Western, anti-Western, they were confronted with a problem of that scale that it was uh, no time and no appetite to imitate anything anymore. And that was just about survival of states, societies, people, and now we're living in a completely different environment. 
No, listen, I totally agree. And uh, I do believe that in a certain way, we are living in a totally new period. And you're going to see that any references to the post-Cold War period and so on are now perceived as very artificial. What is interesting about this new period is first, there was particularly this one, two months when we all have been confronted with uh, the pandemic, that for the moment we have been living in a common world. You're staying in your apartment, you're not moving anywhere, but suddenly you have the feeling that you're living in the world as a whole because you go on the television, you're changing the television channels, and nevertheless on what kind of language people are talking, you know what they're talking about because all of them are talking about COVID-19. And secondly, nevertheless, that there was uh, early attempts to say who is going to win, democracy or authoritarian regimes. For the moment, it's clear that some other factors and not the nature of the political regime better predicts who is doing well. I mean, this is the level of social trust. This is the capacity of the state. This is the experience of uh, this type of a crisis. At the same time, there was also two paradoxical things that happened as a result of the COVID-19. And this is that at because of the very high uncertainty, you have all these different countries, all these different regimes that in the beginning were doing basically the same thing. Uh, they're imitating, but not in the way that they're imitating models. But when you don't know what to do, you try to do what others are doing because you don't tomorrow to be accused of your citizens that you didn't do it. Uh, so from this point of view, this was a kind of a reflex of self-protection for the governments that in this initial stage, people have been going on the lockdowns and so on exactly because of this high level of uncertainty. You don't know what is going on. You don't understand it. You don't have any information. Now, as a the moment when basically the crisis started to change, it's much more economical, it's different in different societies. I very much agree with Fyodor that we're seeing more and more uh, the modes of survival being different. And the countries are much more trying to make sense of what is happening in their own places. But, but you know, one thing that it seems to me is that the, the and this came up with some other conversations Fyodor and I have been having, and that is the ideology of a particular state system seems to matter less or not at all in dealing with this pandemic. So it's getting, it's because of COVID, it's, it's almost, it's very difficult, if not somewhat uh, unnecessary to distinguish states between say free and unfree liberal or authoritarianism, since they're all trying to, you know, ideology isn't, part of the, the conversation and how to deal with the pandemic, at least it seems to me. No, no, listen, in the beginning of the crisis, if I'm just going to tell you what the governments are doing, and I'm not going to tell you, is this country a democracy or authoritarian regime, you're not going to guess. Uh, because uh, basically, and I do believe this was uh, the British political scientist, David Ranciman, who made a very important point that in a kind of a high uncertainty like this, uh, government starts to look each other very much like each other, nevertheless, if they are otherwise political differences, because for them, the most important is the capacity to govern. Uh, and this was quite interesting, because particularly in Europe, uh, one of the major challenges that came with the pandemic was how to recognize its novelty. Because if you look closer, you're going to see that the problems that come with the COVID-19 were very much the second coming of the three previous crises. For example, all the issues around human rights, violation of human rights, the issue of surveillance and so on, is very similar to the problems that Western societies have been discussing in the context of the war on terror. And then basically all the economic issues that we have been discussing were not very different than the problems that we have been discussing in the context of the global financial crisis. And then when basically overnight the borders between the EU member states have been closed, uh, the the talk about nationalism came. And this was very much the conversation that we have in the context of the refugee crisis. But my major argument was that it looks very much the same, but it is not. For example, people are much more ready to tolerate surveillance for the public health purposes than for the anti-terrorist purposes. Uh, they were much more ready to basically allow to go with these virus tracking apps. And one of the stories is that you are very much afraid that you're going to infect somebody else. 
Uh, when it comes to the nationalism, the nationalism that was triggered by the COVID-19 crisis was very different by, from the nationalism that was triggered by the refugee crisis. Refugee crisis was a classical ethnic nationalism. It was the nationalism based on origin. Uh, the COVID-19 triggered nationalism was the nationalism based on residence. Uh, for example, uh, uh, Bulgarian society was not really excited, people like me living outside of the country to come back during the COVID-19 because they were afraid that we can infect people. Uh, so from this point of view, it's very different. And also, if you see the reaction of the European societies uh, to how you should spend money, what Europe is doing today as a response to this crisis is just the contrary with what we did after the, uh, the, uh, the global financial crisis. So from this point of view, I do believe it's very interesting because it's a novel situation, but it is not easy to articulate uh, its novelty. You know, in the in the if we look at past crises of, of the 20th century, particularly in the first half of the 20th century, particularly around World War II, uh, the Great Depression, and I mean, World War I, the Great Depression, and World War II, you do see a similar, um, where states are converging in terms of how they manage those crises, right? You get greater nationalization, you get greater state involvement in society and the economy, um, do you, and then, of course, this had a profound impact on shaping the post-World War II period to a large extent, right? Social welfare states in, in Europe, to some extent in the United States, and of course, you have the Soviet Union. Um, do you see COVID also having, and all of these changes in what states are doing, and these different, you know, modes of, of looking at or dealing with the, the the pandemic, do you see them having a lasting effect like we saw in the first half of the after the first half of the twentieth century? Listen, I do believe it's too early for several reasons. In a certain way, first the crisis is not over and we don't know exactly how it's going to develop. And to be honest, we don't know what it means for this crisis to end because people now talk religiously about the vaccine. If I read the opinion polls and the strengths of the anti-vaccine movement in many countries, very much including the United States, when you see 50% of the people who said that they're never going to allow it to be vaccinated, so probably the impact of the vaccine is not going to be so overwhelming than people expect. Uh, so I do believe that we are seeing certain trends. One of the trends was that before, and this was particularly important in the 1990s, uh, economic interdependence was perceived as the major source of security in the world. The story was the more we trade, the less we are going basically uh, to fight. And uh, this kind of a total fascination uh, with the fact that uh, you don't know in how many countries, for example, the parts of your car have been manufactured. Uh, and then came uh, this crisis in which in economic interdependence was perceived as uh, basically the source of insecurity. The fact that 90% of the antibiotics that Europeans are using have been produced either in Malaysia or China or India was perceived as a problem. And I do believe one of the interesting stories that is coming is that not that people fell in love with the state, but they start to treat the state as a major insurer against the risks coming with the market. In a certain way, this is not the welfare state back. It's a kind of a stockpiling state. You expect the state to have everything that you're going to need for the next crisis. Uh, and of course, this is interesting because if this is going to change very much the nature of the international relations. And what made me uh, quite sad was that if a year ago we're going to have this discussion, and if you're going to ask me what kind of a crisis can save international cooperation, out of all crises, wars, great migrations, even climate change, I was going to say probably pandemic. Because we have a common interest, because it's based on science and medical community is one of the most integrated communities in the world. And suddenly we have this pandemic and multilateral institutions were totally paralyzed and international cooperation was just a joke. Uh, you can see what is happening with the World Health Organizations in order to understand that probably on the international level, we have a much bigger problem that we are ready to recognize. Uh, if I may uh, turn our discussion a little bit back to liberal democracy and uh, provoke you, both of you, a little bit with, uh, uh, with a thought, uh, that liberal democracy nowadays 
changed uh, the nature because uh, when uh, Fukuyama wrote his piece and book and when uh, all of us uh, were very much enthusiastic about a new, brave new democratic and liberal world, as Ivan remembered uh, from uh, 1980s, we, uh, especially in the post-communist world, but not only, uh, believed that liberal democracy was about change. Change uh, those who, uh, in authoritarian societies, uh, used to sit uh, uh, with uh, seated power uh, as, as long as possible. And that probably was correct. Now, when I look at uh, what happens worldwide, not only in countries like Russia or China or Turkey, but also in countries with a very uh, uh, brave record of liberal democracy, I uh, come to a very strange conclusion that liberal democracy now is rather a way to guarantee that uh, nothing will change in the future. Uh, not maybe not necessarily uh, persons sometimes yes but at least uh, the the uh, the course the the mainstream look at israel that's a fantastic example uh bibi netanyahu he's a genius politician he turned uh, endless elections uh, into way to keep power and to stay away from uh, from uh, uh, court. Uh, now, uh, as I understand, Israel is moving towards fourth election in uh, 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 a little bit more than, than one year. But not only there, look at uh, election campaigns in uh, very much democratic and liberal countries in Europe or even in the United States, when uh, the bulk of mainstream, bulk of establishment, uh, try to do everything possible by communication means, by, by, by all possible means, uh, not to allow the line to be altered. And uh, uh, to see, when it happens, like in, in the United States, now probably we will see uh, really titanic attempts to, 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 uh, to change it back. Don't you think, Ivan, that liberal democracy uh, at the end of the day uh, came? The, so the, the the circle was was done, and now we are back to the system when uh, non changeability, so to say, is the main uh, the main value. Uh, I agree, and this, uh, and I'm going to touch on this. There are several economic, but also demographic preconditions for this, particularly on the European side, which I know better. But don't forget, liberal democracy, in a certain way, always has these two faces. This was the way to have a change which does not need violence, and at the same time, basically, this was uh, the way to moderate change. If you see the very, the very idea of the elections, uh, the elections has uh, one mystery that, in my view, is very important. On one level, you represent interests, but what is important in the elections that you do not represent the passion of the people voting. You, who are very much kind of passionate about certain change, and me, who are quite indifferent, both of us have one vote. Uh, and from this point of view, the liberal democracy was always the way to tame a revolution. Uh, the strange thing that is coming, in my view, and this is interesting about COVID-19, people all the time saying how the COVID-19 is changing the world. To some extent, this is true. But I do believe it's even truer that COVID-19 simply allowed us to see how the world has been changed in the last decades. And we are kind of unable, unwilling to see the change. Uh, and strangely enough, you basically have it. I'm going to give you one example from the United States. The narrative of the United States as an immigrant society was so strong in the 60s and 70s when the percentage of the percent of the American citizens that have been born in the United States was around 5%. Now, when the percent of the American citizens is around 50, not born in the United States, is around 50%. Suddenly, the identity of the America is discussed not so much as an immigrant society, but much more going back uh, to slavery, the race relations, and so on. 
Strangely enough, America was talking about itself as an immigrant society when it was an immigrant society much less than today. Uh, in Europe also, uh, in 2018, uh, there was a big pan-European survey which was done by the Bertelsmann Foundation, and it discovered that 50% of the Europeans, including quite a lot of young people, believe that yesterday is, was better than today. Uh, so you have a kind of a nostalgic public, and part of this nostalgia is fear of the future. You don't know how it is going to be. And this is the difference from the 1990s. 1990s is not simply that we like the future, but because the future was the West, we also knew how it was going to look like. Uh, now the future is totally unknown. And, and I agree with Fyodor that now the idea of the change is becoming highly problematic, particularly in aging societies. And also the change on the level of the everyday life, on the level of the economy and so on, is so strong. That if before the politics was pushing for the change, now the politics is kind of the brakes on the change. Yeah, if I if I can comment on, uh, comment on this too, because I, I actually see it as a uh, the inability of liberal uh, ideology or the ideology of liberal democracy to actually be dynamic enough to change with the structural changes that are going on. And here, I think it goes back to what you said, Yvonne, about. The fact that, you know, at the same time you have the adoption of liberal democracy in Eastern Europe, you have a, a resting on its laurels in the West, a, a kind of move to a, a move to a more non-critical and non-self-reflexive look at liberal democracy. And I think in, in some cases, I sometimes think about this in terms of a dynamic that we saw at the end of the Soviet Union, and that is the ideology, the society had changed so much on a structural everyday level that the ideology became hollowed out and it became more performative. And it, because it was so, it lacked any kind of dynamism, it couldn't successfully adapt to changing, you know, material conditions. And this is something that I see happening, you know, in liberal democratic societies more and more that liberal democracy is, is, in terms of how it's spoken about, how it's it's articulated, is mostly performative, and it doesn't really correspond to more and more people's everyday lives. Uh, listen, I'm going to agree with you, and I'm going to refer to two books from this point of view that are very interesting and uh, touching on different periods. There was a book by the, I don't believe it was published in 1975, by Huntington was The Promise of Disharmony. Uh, this is not his greatest book, and uh, this is uh, you always can easily disagree with Huntington's uh, on many issues, but he had a very good intuition about certain things. Uh, and one of the interesting stories about this book was that he was comparing the East European protests of the 1968 with what happened in the Western societies, uh, and his argument was, in a certain way, this crisis was re-legitimizing the regimes on both places, because uh, the protests and basically the protest energy was on behalf of the ideals of the system. So in a certain way, American students were going and protesting against the war in Vietnam, against the uh, racism and so on, saying this is not the American dream. What you're doing is not the American dream. And he said, when you go to the Czechoslovakia back then, socialism with uh, human face and so on, the message was, this is not the real socialism. Then came 1989, and then the protests were not on behalf of the system. In a certain way, the protests were about, this is the guilt of the system. From this point of view, I see analogies with certain things that we see in the United States today, rhetorically, where many people who protest they do not protest on behalf of defending the American dream, but basically saying the American dream itself is problematic. And, and this, is, this is kind of a new development. And the second, uh, there was a book by the American sociologist called Political Epistemics, which asked the questions which comes very close to what you are saying. This is about the failure of the state socialism in East Germany. And the question he was asking, and he made a lot of interviews, particularly with the former Stasi people, was the following. How it happened that most of the insights about dysfunctionality of the socialist regimes were coming from within the regimes? In a certain way, uh, people living in Eastern Europe knew better what is wrong with Eastern Europe. Why it never managed to be reflected and articulated in the policies of the communist governments. And he said, the problem is that the general frameworks 
on which these governments has been functioning was not allowing them to integrate this criticism and these insights. Socialism believed that their system is so good in general uh, that all other things that are happening, dysfunctionalities and others, they're less important. Uh, and I do believe from this point of view, Soviet Union uh, uh, in a certain way became so vulnerable that because of the uh, great victory of, uh, of the Soviet Union during the World War II, uh, the understanding of the Soviet leadership was that if a country can survive something like the World War II, there is no conditions under which you can collapse. Uh, and I do believe this is also some of the problems that liberal democracies are facing today. Uh, the idea is if we have won the Cold War, why we should be afraid of this or that? And uh, uh, how to integrate uh, the, the kind of the quite well uh, seen problems and dysfunctionalities of the system and how to act on them is something that is going to be, in my view, the biggest challenge to the liberal democracies. Uh, how not to rely simply on the system. The claim that because we are liberal democracy, this cannot happen to us, in my view, is a wrong claim. Uh, you know, if, if you're right, and I, I, I tend to believe that you're right about uh, this uh, feeling uh, which Soviet Union had at the end of uh, 80s or uh, early 80s and uh, the problem with the United States now. But then uh, Russia today is in a much better position because this is uh, rather the opposite, the feeling of uh, hyper-vulnerability this feeling that everything is so dangerous and risky that the main uh, task of the state or society or everybody is to try to avoid risks and to maneuver to model through uh, maybe this uh, feeling w is is uh, more uh, reasonable in today's world or how you see it yeah, yeah. You, you, on the short term, you could be right, of course, basically thinking in terms of survival. But uh, part of the Russia problem is that if you're so much afraid of the future, you try to act in the way not to allow the future to come. Uh, for example, uh, the, the perspective of a post-Putin Russia is so kind of a scary for many uh, that you're basically you're going to behave and never allowing the post-Putin Russia to come. Uh, so the moment when basically you start to imagine that post-Putin Russia is coming, Putin is saying, no, no, don't worry. Basically, I'm here to stay. Uh, and I do believe that in a certain way, this type of a survival thinking has its strengths on a certain period of time, but we cannot simply put the future in brackets. And I do believe how to learn to fall in love with the future again is the biggest problem, both for the West and for the Russia, because for different reasons. West, because we believed, or they believed, uh, I mean, the Western Europe and the United States, that there were the future, uh, and Russia that basically believed that the future is kind of apocalyptic and this and that. As a result of it, both societies don't know how to think about the future in a positive terms. Um, I want to I want to go back to to the issue of liberalism and um, and what it means today in in East and Central Europe and you know in in the nineteen nineties you had this great euphoric period where liberalism as you said was was seen as you know the end of history there's no other trajectory how is how is liberalism and liberal democracy understood today in 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 East Central Europe. Listen, it is also slightly more complicated than people basically believe it because uh, East European societies on most of the issues that are discussed are much more liberal than they have ever been. If you're going on the level of, uh, for example, sexual minority rights uh, or even kind of uh, other minority rights, with the exception of the migration issue where Central and Eastern Europe is a particular case because we have a very strong anti-migrant consensus in the absence of migrants. Uh, but uh, uh, if you go to see the society has been opening, but at the same time, liberalism became the synonymous for the last 30 years. And for different reasons, different group of societies uh, basically are quite resentful to what has happened. Uh, in a certain way, people have the feeling that they were betrayed in their expectations, not only economic expectations. We're not only talking in places like Poland, for example, economy does not explain what is happening. On the other side, some of this uh, search of illiberal forces, this is not forever too. Uh, and this is the interesting story of, of uh, liberalism. Listen, liberalism was never particularly good. 
powerful in a revolutionary moment. Liberals are either people in the old elite that try to change without basically uh, trying also to prevent the revolution or disappointed with the revolution people like Benjamin Constant who sided with the revolution and then discovered the dark sides of it. So it comes either before the revolution or after terror. Uh, in the moment when people are very much uh, overexcited, the liberals are never doing very well. Uh, and the interesting story about Central and Eastern Europe is you have a kind of a new generation of liberals and liberals parties and actors, which are very much born out of disappointment with the populist governments. You have the new president of Slovakia, but you also have the mayor of uh, uh, Warsaw, who lost the uh, presidential elections, but basically it was 50-50. Uh, from this point of view, Poland is so much like the United States. It's so polarized uh, and divided country. So I do believe every generation is going to have their own version of liberalism. It's going to be very different. It's going to put on different story. But one of the things that is going to be there is the idea of the individual rights and the fact that I know best what is best for me. Because at a certain point, this is where liberalism is uh, quite strong and where it stands. But, but at the same time, uh, I fully agree with you, but uh, it seems sometimes in the 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 version of liberalism uh which uh, uh which is uh which was in place and is in place now based on this identity uh, policy and so on uh it's uh so the the idea of individual rights is not a monopoly of liberalism it might be it might be a very much conservative idea and those in the united states uh, or in poland who oppose the liberal dictate, as they as they call it, they believe that they defend their individual rights against uh, a new version of uh, Bolshevism. Uh, yeah, no, no, no. Listen, this is this the squeeze of the liberal middle is the result that one side you have the libertarians, who basically made the individual rights the only thing that matter. And on the on the other side, basically, you have radical communitarian ideas coming based both from the left and from the right, either based on uh, ethnicity or on other type of collective identities. I do believe it's important. Also, the liberals in the period of the liberal monopoly was totally focused on institutions. Uh, uh, and this is so interesting to see that people believe that if certain type of a constitutional framework is there, nothing wrong can happen. And after the last several years, we know that in one and the same constitutional costume, you can have very different political regimes. And the exercise of power cannot be divorced from the constellation of the social forces. It cannot be divorced by the general feeling of the public of what is going on. And what I do believe that I really miss in this type of a highly polarized society is that if society is really highly polarized, what we see in the United States or Poland, everybody is uh, for the division of powers. Everybody in theory defines the constitution. Everybody is for democracy, but political parties and their supporters agree that the biggest threat for democracy is the other party winning. Uh, and this creates a dynamism which is very difficult uh, to uh, to basically uh, uh, to basically sustain the functioning institutions. From this point of view, some of the old uh, ideas coming from Eastern Europe in the 1970s and 1980s could be revived. For example, dissidents in Eastern Europe uh, were interesting group not because they simply they disagree with the regime, but because they were a former believers. Most of the key figure in the dissident movement were either communists or coming from the communist families. So first, they have been dissenting from their own group. So their non-conformism was not simply against the state, but it was against their own milieu. What I see problematic in this highly polarized society is that everybody is very kind of a radical disagreeing with the other side. But people are becoming very conformist when it comes uh, to disagreement with their own uh, uh, own social group. You know, another another uh, manifestation that's thrown around a political manifestation that's thrown around a lot to describe the politics in East Central Europe is populism, uh, and and it's usually seemed to be deployed as a as a scare word against you know as as in opposition to liberal democracy. What is your view on populism and and? How, if it is a, a, an 
important thing in East Central Europe? Listen, uh, populism now is used for everything that we don't like. So uh, uh, from this point of view, the, it became a very slippery term. But there was one important thing that you can see in Central and Eastern Europe is that populism is not anti-democratic. In Central and Eastern Europe, this is the idea of the a form of the democratic majoritarianism. And because of the very strong ethnic homogeneity of Central and East European societies, this is very much about basically... When we talk about majoritarianism, this is the majoritarianism of the major ethnic groups. Uh, so this is why uh, one of the major problems with uh, uh, the populism is that they went against the system of the check and balances. And the major message of the populist to the voters is, if you want me to do what I promise you on the elections, give me the whole power. There is totally no trust in any independent neutral institutions. Total mistrust to the independent media. Media is never independent. Total in, uh, mistrust in the courts. The major kind of a logic of the populist thinking is a classical Carl Schmitt divide between the friends and enemies. Any institutions which I am not controlling is controlled by my enemies. Uh, and this makes the populist kind of a problematic for the liberal, liberal democratic settings, and particularly in the European Union, where uh, European Union is based on diffusion of power. The major story, the secret of the European Union is that nobody knows where the power is. We assume that probably there is power center somewhere, but you never know where it is. Uh, on the other side, as, as I said, it is not anti-democratic because it really believes in the power of the majority and in the power of the elections. Uh, how this is going to be balanced, I don't believe it's different from countries to countries. And also, keep in mind, we put on the populist ticket, very different parties and very different type of regimes. Poland and Hungary is not the same story. Uh, and uh, when people start to talk about populists, mainly in terms of corruption and so on, I know a lot of democratic regimes which are not populist and they're corrupt enough. So from this point of view, you cannot reduce populism simply to a kind of a distortion of a major kind of gover good governance practices. Yeah, maybe uh, we're moving towards the end of our hour. Uh, maybe uh, back to your uh, to the initial book and uh, a little bit about Russia. So you you write extensively about uh, Russian way to imitate, and uh, you are pretty gloomy about <laughs> Russia today and maybe even Russia in the future. Uh, from my point of view, as uh, as a citizen of this country, you overestimate uh, the uh, efficiency of this uh, system and uh, this political model. So I could could never believe uh, in all those accusations about meddling uh, because uh, uh, if it would be correct, that would demonstrate such high level of organization in, in Russia, which we never witnessed before and maybe we'll never witness in the future. But anyway, uh, you uh, explained uh, from your point of view how Russia first tried to imitate uh, liberal democracy and then tried to retaliate for, for failure of this uh, imitation. Uh, if now, in this new environment which we discussed earlier, try to look at the future of those who try to stop imitating, and in particular uh, on Russia. What, what is your feeling? Which direction it might turn? Uh, listen, this is interesting. And uh, to, be, uh, to be honest, my idea was when we talk also about meddling and others, uh, I do believe that uh, Russia interfered, but for different reasons than most of the people believe. Uh, for the Russia, the idea of having a great power status was, I can do to you what you're doing to me. Uh, and this type of a mirroring Western policies became the rationale of many things. Uh, uh, so basically because Russian leadership was very much kind of uh, hurt by the fact that there was, in their views, a lot of Western meddling in the Russian domestic politics, you're meddling in the American domestic politics not because you want to achieve certain results, not because you want to put somebody there, but because you want to show the capacity to do this. Uh, and this basically, we are, uh, the idea also that we are not different uh, is quite important. And I do believe this is quite important because first Russia has a general fascination with the Western model. 
and I do believe that there was this initial idea, yes, we're going to transform, we're going to be like America, not like the small European states. And then you have the reality of the 1990s, which was frustrating on economic, on social, on geopolitical level. And then the Russia, in my view, or at least part of the Russian elite, has the feeling that the country was cheated. Uh, that uh, I do believe Surkov has this uh, famous story. We were interested basically uh, in the thing and we were giving just the wrapping. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then in a certain way, the idea was, yes, we're going to imitate you, but we're going to imitate the real thing. And the real thing is interfering. The real thing is the uh, politics of, uh, of power. Uh, uh, all this is fine. And I do believe in the world of the imitation, Russia turned and uh, President Putin turned to be much more important than you can expect just reading the economic realities. I do believe Russia, like the European Union, like the United States, is going to have a much more challenging time in this kind of a corona world where the American hegemony uh, is not simply uh, basically the game in town where I do believe we're going to see the rebellion of different regional powers and others trying to find a place for the world that was much more fragmented. Uh, and this kind of uh, let's uh, hungry sovereignties boom uh, is going to be an interesting story. So from my point of view, for example, the Libyan crisis is the first crisis of the new generation. You cannot be explained. People, countries are changing positions. Where the Americans are, Europeans are on all possible positions. Turkey is overactive. Uh, this story that in every different conflict you have an ad hoc coalitions so different than what you had both in the Cold War and the post Cold War world. So this is a different world, and uh, it's interesting. I don't believe that we know much about this world, but it's going to be different both from the Cold War and from the post Cold War period. Yeah, this is this leads me to I wanted to ask you about the geopolitical implications of all of this, and because you know, is Central and Eastern Europe, it it sits between, you know, two two general geopolitical spheres, right? There's the Anglo-American sphere, and then there's the Russian sphere, and over the last thirty years. Uh, Eastern Europe has been mostly moving into the Anglo-American sphere with the EU and, and NATO membership. Um, how does the return of illiberalism or the, the crisis of liberal democracy impact cent East Central Europe's position vis-a-vis -vis these two spheres? Listen, I have been part of a big survey that uh, European Council of Foreign Relations uh, did in the early May on the impact of COVID-19. And this was interesting to see, uh, because uh, uh, on one level, you have the majority of Europeans being totally unimpressed uh, with the performance of the European Union in the first two months is the public health stage of the crisis. Basically, the European Union was the big absent there. Uh, and then some of the countries were quite happy with the performance of the nation states. Some others were not happy with their nation states. But interestingly enough, you end it with a very contradictory claims. On one side, people reconfirmed their loyalty to their nation states. And on the other side, you have a demand, 70% ask for more European cooperation. And the reason was, for the first time, Europeans understood how lonely we are in the world. The United States was not to be seen anywhere. And by the way, the collapse of the image of the United States as a result of the COVID-19 crisis is something to be taken very seriously. It was not only about Trump. Trump was not particularly uh, popular, with the exception of a certain parts of Eastern Europe in general. But suddenly you see the United States as dysfunctional, this rich country spending so much on public health, looking in the way it looked now. China also came up as much more aggressive than most of the Europeans wanted to do it. So strangely enough, I do believe that in Europe we are going to see a kind of a consolidation around the European Union, not based on values, but on geography. So the European Union is much more turning as a community of faith than as a community of values. Uh, European Union is much more ready to tolerate the liberal regimes like Hungary or Poland. And Hungary and Poland, particularly in the fear that Trump is going to lose and President Biden, for whom they are not particularly enthusiastic, is going to come, are going to stay much closer to the European Union than you can expect listening to them. I do believe this is a new reality. And from this point of view, it's quite interesting because European Union today strangely reminds me of the, frankly, the Delano Roosevelt coalition during the New Deal, 
which was a coalition between the most progressive liberals of the North and the most uh, reactionary Southern Democrats. I'm really scared to imagine how the the uh, next uh, Roosevelt will look like. No, no, but it's in, because it is interesting to see, for example, uh, yeah, the Poles, Hungarians, and others are very sovereignist, uh, but it you need simply a common sense to know that these small and mid-sized European countries cannot be a sovereign in this big world around. Particularly economic sovereignty does not make any sense because 30% of the export, uh, industrial export of Hungary comes from four German companies. And from this point of view, it was interesting to see with COVID-19. It started with closing of the borders. But in the way people go back to their apartments in the beginning of the lockdown, in order to understand that you cannot stay there forever, Countries close their borders in order to understand that economically they cannot survive like this. Because for the first time you have a nationalism in the absence of uh, national economies. And this is a reality which, of course, can take different shapes, uh, but it is going to be interesting. And I don't know. Of course, Europe has its own kind of expectations of how the relations with Russia can go. Uh, and this is the European dream that Russians are going up so much afraid of China that at some point they're going to come closer to Europe. To be honest, I'm not sharing this dream. Uh, I do believe for many reasons, basically, Russia is not going to be too much attracted uh, uh, to this kind of a uh, uh, continental European realities. On the other side, of course, the relations with the United States are going to be much more difficult than people expect, because uh, uh, the challenge for uh, uh, for the Democrat and for uh, Joe Biden, if he's going to be elected, is not to restore the relationship, but to reinvent it. You cannot go back to where it was. Uh, I think uh, we covered almost almost everything, and uh, uh, just uh, <laughs> uh, I, I remember that uh, uh, I think it was nineteen ninety. Uh, John Mersheimer wrote a piece uh, which was called "Why We Soon Will Miss the Cold War." And he described basically that uh, with all uh, bad sides and atrocities of the Cold War, but it was extremely well-organized international system. Uh, and uh, the new period, which at that time it was beginning of just uh, liberal world order, according to Mersheimer, uh, was... Uh, expected to be uh, much less clear and more turbulent. Uh, he uh, overstated a little bit, but uh, in, in general, he, he was right in, in describing risks. I think now uh, maybe uh, all of us together uh, in a couple of years' time will uh, write uh, an essay um, why we miss uh, liberal world order. And in this regard, uh, I actually agree with what Ivan said about Russia. Uh, Russia was not a big um, uh, admirer of uh, the situation after eighty uh, nine, but the whole uh, uh, narrative and the whole self-perception was based on the idea that we need to overcome that um, event, the collapse and the change of status. And now it has been achieved, more or less, to the to the to the level it was possible to do, and uh, totally unclear what next. So in the in the world of uh, U.S. hegemony, it was at least very much clear whom to whom to criticize and against whom to struggle. Now I think less so. Uh, no, no, I totally agree. I do believe that one of the effects of the COVID nineteen went in two different directions. On one level, we are going to have a new nostalgia. Uh, the thing that looks to us abnormal, to many, the pre-COVID world, is going to look like the normality lost. Uh, but on the other side, uh, particularly for different uh, radical groups, uh, being left, being on the right, of, uh, suddenly the COVID-19 made many things that they have been only dreaming about, but they believe that they're impossible. Now they look possible. Listen, if you're a climate activist and you have been dreaming all your life to land the planes in one single day, 
and you dream about this, but you believe that this is impossible, now you know it's possible. And if you're a radical nationalist and you always wanted to resurrect the borders between the EU member states, you dreamed about this, but you believe that this is impossible. Now you know that it is possible. So you're going to have a radical imagination of certain groups and nostalgia of the others, and we're going to live in the world which is not going to be a boring one. You've been listening to Geopolitics on the Move. Geopolitics on the Move is produced by Russia and Global Affairs, the Graduate Initiative in Russian Studies at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies, and the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. The Carnegie Corporation of New York provided funding. The theme music is focused by A.A. Alto. Until next time, bye. Bye.